0: Welcome to the Reimagining Faith podcast with the Pastor Jackson. This is a podcast for seekers, dreamers, and fellow sojourners who are trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus in the 21st century. Fair warning, today we are talking about two plays, The Laramie Project and The Laramie Project 10 years later. And so, a part of this episode is explaining the life and violent death of Matthew Shepard in 1998. If you don't want to hear that and that is just a bit too much for you today feel free to skip ahead to about minute 16 or 17 Um, after that we're talking mostly about the play and things more in general Um, if this is upsetting to you you can skip ahead to that or skip the episode altogether we love you here's the episode so, here at Open Table, we like to say that we are theologically progressive, Pottstown-focused, with Jesus at the center. And so, we have been doing this podcast series now in which we are exploring those convictions in more detail. And uh, we've already talked about what it means to be theologically progressive to us, and we've been talking about being Pottstown-focused. And in order to do that, we've been talking with some people, uh, Pillars in the Pottstown community, some people that are doing some really interesting, exciting things, uh, matters of uh, justice, matters of making our community better places. We've already talked about school funding, we've talked about the unhoused, and we are so excited today (laughs) to be here in the podcast basement um, with the education director for Steel River. Steel River Community Playhouse is on uh high street what's the exact address i should know this because it's where our church meets 245 245 east high street 245 east high street you can't miss it it's got a big old sign um they are constantly putting on incredible high quality productions they are our gracious hosts that's where we meet on sunday mornings and so it was only right that we should have the education director um stacy michon with us today um Hi, Stacey.
1: Hi, Zach. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we wanted you here specifically, not just because you are the education director and you're doing wonderful things with that, um in connecting with youth and and uh, helping to spread the good news of performing arts, but also because you are doing something really special right now. You are in the middle of a run of not one but two shows, two shows that are connected but are distinct, and you're running them every other weekend. Correct. Right? So this is uh, the Laramie Project, and the Laramie Project 10 years later, which follows a, uh, a series of interviews in, uh, in Laramie, Wyoming, Wyoming um, after the awful, atrocious killing of Matthew Shepard. Mm-hmm. And I have yet to see it. Nicole has seen it. I see it in a week or two. Well,
2: I saw the first half. So I am not seeing the the second one until the end of the month, um, which looking back now, I regret that (laughs) very (laughs) much so. But yeah. yeah. So can you share with us, I mean, we have so many questions, but (laughs) can you share with us about the show? Yes. So
1: as Zach said, it is... Let me back up. The Tectonic Theater Project in New York City decided after Matthew Shepard's killing to go to Laramie, Wyoming, to conduct a series of interviews with people of the town. We just hosted Dennis Shepard, mm-hmm. Matthew Shepard's father, last evening for a virtual talk back. And I... One. The first question I asked him was, "How did this come to be? Were they aware of Tectonic Theater Project yeah. um, doing this exploration and investigation, um, or, or did it? You know, was his awareness after the fact? And he said that um, Moises Kaufman, who is the the head of the project, um, asked them. Permission, and Judy Shepard, Dennis's wife, Matthew's mother, said, "Are we going to be in the play?" And he said, "No." And she said, "That's fine." Hmm. So, the Tectonic Theater Project, um, six of them, went to Laramie, Wyoming, and interviewed uh, sheriffs and detectives and people of the town, friends of Matthew, uh, advisors of Matthew, uh, people who were connected. In some way, somehow, um, and even if they weren't connected, people who were just impacted because everyone was impacted and they just did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews and then looked at them, edited some, not in terms of changing any language, but mm. um, just maybe uh, a four page interview became, you know, a monologue, you know, one page a monologue, and then assembled it into these magnificent pieces. So the actors who are on stage are portraying people who live in
0: Laramie. So are these uh, monologues that they're doing, are they the actual words of the people from the interviews?
1: They are. Like and verbatim. They are. Wow. They are. Um, and Dennis even... Uh, said last night, if an actor is ever changing any of the words, then you are not honoring mm-hmm. the people who gave their accounts. He, um, if you have time for a quick anecdote, he relayed that there was a high school, a Jesuit high school, I forget where, who wanted to do the play, and the the school board was censoring some of the language in the play because some of the characters the people um, used expletives used certain phrases because that's what they were feeling in the moment Um, and um, they said they couldn't do it and the students protested and in the end they got to do it but dennis was um, highlighting that moment to say you know it wasn't about it's not about bad language it's about how these people were experiencing what had taken place. And so that was their, that was their
2: expression. Hmm. Can you share a bit about what the story, um, I I mean, spoiler alert, I'm sorry, Zach, but, um, and it would be spoiler alert for me too, uh, if you shared with the second half, but I think for our listeners, if you can kind of share about Matthew Shepard and who he was, what happened, and why this was such a significant event in our history, sure.
1: Matt uh, grew up in Wyoming. Um, his parents, his father, uh, was not able to continue doing work in Wyoming, and actually, um, I, I believe he worked with an oil company and had to go to Saudi Arabia to to get work. So Matt and his brother Logan uh, were over there, and then had the opportunity to go to boarding school abroad and matt went to boarding school in switzerland i forget where logan went because there was no um i think uh, education for um students from america only went to junior high um matt was in morocco for spring break one time and went out with some friends and they retired and he decided to go out again and was ambushed by some people, and he was raped and, and hurt. And that definitely impacted his life. He went through some depression. Um, he went back to Wyoming. In the end, he was getting back on track, and he went to the University of Wyoming. Um, he had come out to his parents, Um He was becoming engaged. He wanted to become an activist. He was making connections. And uh, one evening, he went to the Fireside Bar in Laramie. And uh, two other young men, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, came in to the bar. And they didn't have a lot of money. They paid for a pitcher of beer and uh, dimes and quarters or dimes and nickels. And started to play pool and Uh, They needed more money, and um, they presumed Matt was gay Mm -hmm. and went into the bathroom and made a plan to decide that they were gay to lure him out of the bar, and they robbed him. They took his wallet um, but did not let him go and instead took him out to a prairie area that was on the outskirts of Laramie and uh, beat him with uh, a Magnum 357, 19 to 21 times in the head. And they tied him to a buck fence. They took his shoes um, to, in the event that he was able to escape, that he would have trouble running across the terrain to get help. Mm. And, A part I should mention was uh, Aaron asked Matt during the course of his beating if he could read his license plate number, and Matt read it verbatim. And his mother, Judy, in her book about Matt, says that was what sealed his fate, because he got three more blows to the head, the last one crushing I'm not exactly sure, but it was probably the the thing that would ultimately cause his death. Mm. Um, And Aaron didn't want him to recognize his license plate number. So, um, miraculously, somehow, he he was out there for 18 hours and he was alive all that time before he was discovered um, by Aaron Kreifels, who was riding his bike and... Chose to go a different path that day. yeah. Um, And he he believes God sent him that way because he's never gone that way before and um, hit some rocks and landed near the spot where Matthew was and thought he was a scarecrow because it was around Halloween, it was early October, until he saw his chest moving and his hair. And that's when he realized it was a person and then he ran to a neighboring house to call 911. Matt was hospitalized for a few days and then he died October 12th. His parents were in Saudi Arabia when they got the call. Oh my God. And I asked his dad last night, as a parent, like, what was that like to get that call and to be so far away? I mean, we think far away is, in circumstances like that, like being an hour, right? Or, or. It's literally another part of the world. It is. and World away. I'm sure. Yes. And he had to do so many things. They had to get visas to exit the country. Mm. And wrap up things there i mean there were many logistics that they had to take care of in order just to exit and then they also Mm. flew to minneapolis um to get their other son logan who was there at school Mm. um but they had layovers that they couldn't avoid like a 10-hour layover i mean i just couldn't process that as a fellow parent yeah not being able to physically get there yeah um But they also did not know the magnitude of his injuries and the cause of his injuries. They were under the presumption that it was like a car accident um, and he had some head wounds. And then when they were greeted at the airport uh, with police escorts and hearing about Matt's attack being on local news, national news, and and the response that was happening from the country, mm. they they were not privy to any of that. So there was so much processing, as you can imagine. Um, and then they had to be sneaked into the back of the hospital because there was just so much attention. You know, mm. people gathering to pray for Matthew, but also news outlets. I mean, it was just it was a different a different space you know everything just flipped hmm. were they able to be with him they were they were um it's interesting judy his mother writes about the longing to be with him um and but also taking care of people who came to see him hmm. and being there <laughs> yeah. for them yeah. as they we're connecting with him. Mm. Um, she also expressed that she insisted that the the tone, the vibe, the energy be positive yeah. for for Matthew um, while he was lying there. Mm.
2: I didn't realize until I showed saw the show that that he was alive for days. He was um, after yeah. that, and mm-hmm. everybody kind of. You know when there's a stage full of people, right? And so, people just waiting and and waiting, um, and the family keeping people updated. I, you know, that right, right, incredibly generous. Mm. Um, but everybody just kind of waiting on the edge of their seat, um, right? And you could feel that as yes. a person in the audience, like you could feel that, like you know the you know the end of the story, <laughs> but yeah. you kind of are waiting to like. Maybe he'll take a turn for the better. I don't, you know, like they, you have to,
1: don't you? Yeah. I mean, you have to allow that space for hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I think that's that's part of who we are as hom- humans. That yeah. you, there's always hope, right? There's always the chance, and, and I think we do that for our own survival, mm-hmm. you know, to to navigate it.
2: It was it was really powerful. Um, the thing that i think i think theater at least for me gives me is is the capacity to to feel mm-hmm. the feelings of another person mm. to yes to connect with with what's happening on the stage and i think the the cast did an amazing job of of doing that and i i'm sure a lot of that is sticking to actually what was said and 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 not sugarcoating it not you know pretending that um that, that bias uh, wasn't a part of that, that, you know, yeah, it was very powerful. Uh, the people in the show are incredibly talented.
1: They are. Um, They're phenomenal humans, incredible actors. Um, and this is no small feat. I mean, they, they love doing this craft. They also work full-time jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have families, take care of elderly parents their their plates are full and so it is such an act of service mm-hmm. to tackle these pieces embrace these pieces share them with people i mean it's many of the actors drive over an hour to mm. to get to our playhouse mm. and they said it this this work is too important not to miss you know they said that at auditions you know i had i i want to be part of this
0: you hmm. know so this all took place in 1998 correct. correct the kind of national conversation um around lgbtq issues was different back then i think things have changed so quickly with especially with uh uh, millennials and Gen Z growing up, and it just seems like a totally different mindset. Right. That um, the national conversation in '98 was was just different, right? Like how how were these things uh, responded to throughout the throughout the country? What were the news outlets saying? What was the kind of mood of the place?
1: That's a great question. I think the so many news outlets just came down to Laramie. And wanted the story. Um, the interesting response, and and there was a lot of attention at the trial, and the transcripts revealed the intention mm-hmm. of the perpetrators in terms of uh, Aaron McKinney, mm-hmm. especially being homophobic, and the intention to pretend to be gay, and and to and to harm Matthew. Um,
0: So it wasn't just about stealing his wallet.
1: No. No, it wasn't. Hmm. However, when you examine ten years later, in that in that decade gap during during the the course of the years, 2020 came down to do an interview and set up in a house of one of the investigating officers, Dave O'Malley. Elizabeth Vargas and the producer and, you know, uh, this is in Laramie 10 years later and Dave O'Malley talks about being tricked, you know, asking is there a particular focus for this interview, you know, Mm -hmm. he was intrigued while they, why they were examining the case six years after. And he talks about Elizabeth Vargas changing in his bathroom and sitting down at their table. And it's very intimate. It's very personal. And then there was this whole shift about how it was like a drug deal gone bad. And, you know, there are all these rumors started coming out about Aaron and Russell being on a meth binge for two weeks. and. You know, Matthew was involved in drugs and they were meeting about drugs and it was a drug deal. And that sort of narrative, this new narrative surfaces, and 2020, how many people watch 2020? Lots of people. Mm -hmm. And so you project this to the world and people respond and people endorse it and believe it and talk about it and rewrite history. So there was all this was was crackling under the surface. And PBS came in mm. and pointed out where 2020 was wrong. Yeah. You know, they went mm-hmm. point by point by point. Um, <laughs>
0: but by that point.
1: But by that point it's yeah. out there and Dave O'Malley says, and how many people watch PBS compared to 2020? Right. Yeah. So we find in 10 years later it, that it's interesting to watch human nature yeah. Why do we rewrite history? Do we rewrite history because we weren't there? Is it a new generation? Do we rewrite history because the truth makes us uncomfortable? Yes. And it's easier to yeah. demonize Matt in some way mm-hmm. than to say, no, this is us. This this is us. This is we do have people in Laramie who did something. Heinous and despicable and and evil, you know, people do not want to say that, and so we tell ourselves stories that we can process, that we can live with, that we can accept, yep. because it makes us more comfortable.
0: This happens every single time that an unarmed black man is killed by police right. There's initial outrage, and then suddenly the story comes out that, well, he was no angel. You know, he's got this record, he's got this warrant, he's got this, you know, he was probably high on, he had this in his system, he had that and whatever. It's like if you can can demonize the victim, then you don't have to live with that discomfort of your own prejudice, it seems.
1: Right, Uh, right. Right. And it's mm. interesting, last night, I one of our patrons came back who had seen the Laramie Project, and he came back to see 10 years later, and And he said, Stacy, it, it, they had to be high. I mean, they just had to be. And I said, well, you're, gon- you're going to learn differently. And he said, but no one could do that if they weren't. Oh. And I said, but they did. And, and there was another patron who uh, posed the the mm. question to Dennis Shepard that that she was somewhat disappointed in the play that it didn't speak to Aaron McKinney's upbringing, his parents. They were they drinkers. They must had he must mm. had fetal alcohol syndrome. For her, wow. she could not process as a special education teacher and things that she witnesses in her daily life again, could not process that someone could choose to do this Mm. without being impacted by a choice that parents made or um, some, again, some outside influence. And I have to say, Dennis Shepard handled that with such grace, you know, the question. But it's still like in our own house. Mm -hmm. We experience people not being able to understand Wow.
0: These choices. And meanwhile, every single person who is a part of any oppressed minority is sitting there going, yeah, 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 Mm -hmm. people are capable of this. They're capable of this all the time. This has happened to me. This has happened Mm -hmm. to my friends. This has happened to whatever. Um, Just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it's not there and people aren't capable of this kind of awful thing. Right. But we just can't imagine that, right? Right. Not not in our country. Not in our, no. People are generally good. They're not like that.
2: But, in some ways, I, I'm really grateful that people are so uncomfortable because we should be. right? We should see this as heinous. We should see this as something that goes against human nature. Right. Because it is. Um, the victim, the identity of the victim doesn't really like, it never gives reason to do that. And so- right. Um, if we can understand that this is what hatred does, then we can do different. Or we can at least, things like this, open our eyes to the worst of what we're capable of. Um, and why it's so important
0: hmm.
2: to do otherwise. Right. Right.
0: But, so why do this show now? Or at all? It seems like a, I've never heard of this show before. Yeah, before right. this.
1: It's not... Historical, you know, what happened. Um, Moises Kaufman, who's the head writer of the Tectonic Theater Project, did an interview in 2013 and said, I am still waiting for the Laramie Project to feel historical. Mm. And it doesn't. Mm. So it it needs to be told.
2: Gives me goosebumps.
1: Um, Dennis Shepard was saying it's the second most highly produced piece mm. in America. I know they just did a production in Italy and uh it was gorgeous. I mean, they made it snow on stage because it snowed the day of the funeral. Mm-hmm. Um Dennis said there was a location in Kenya where they did it on oh, a rooftop wow. because there if if you are openly gay the circumstances or the result of that discovery is not good. So but the fact that people need to do it and are willing to do it with with uh, such high stakes um, on a rooftop, I find wow. phenomenal, mm-hmm. inspiring, uh, exquisite, breathtaking. So it needs to be told because it's, it's not just about Matt. It's about Pulse. It's about George Floyd. It's about Sandy Hook. It's about... All these tragedies in our country that get an immediate response, immediate reaction, and then things dissipate. Mm-hmm. You know the energy and the um, the advocacy for change. You know mm-hmm. there there's something that just we become quiet again. Is that part of this is uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. Or I'm is it an ignorance that maybe people do want to help, but they don't know what to do? Um, I don't know. I don't know. People seem to lose the gumption to go, we need to do something. And I feel like we end up just then waiting for the next thing to mm-hmm. happen. And we see this pattern over and over and over again. Um, Mm. so Matt's story is, is broad. It's specific and yet it's broad and it's current and contemporary. It will continue to be contemporary 25 years later. It was 25 years ago in October.
0: I've heard it said that humans seem really good at acute compassion, but really bad at chronic empathy.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: That. I mean, how easy was it to unite the world when COVID first hit, and everyone was willing to do their part to uh, contribute to our betterment, but by a month in, it was like, well, now, now I'm done. Now I'm done being compassionate, and I have no empathy for people with you know, compromised immune systems, and I should be able to go to Arby's, I don't care if somebody dies because I go. I don't know how to make people care about people. <laughs> I feel like that is my job, yeah. like, right? In, in my many job ways, description right? as a pastor, to make people yeah. care about other people, right? But it's like my the biggest challenge. How do we get people to care about people beyond you know the response to trauma,
2: or your family, or people who think like you? or look like you, or practice religion like you, or, you know, who love like you. <laughs> like, it, it, we have this capacity to hate difference, and the people who reflect that difference. I wonder, um, so you are an education director, and you have directed shows. Why this one? for you
1: I directed it the first time six years ago mm. at Steel River Playhouse and I remember reading the script and found it so very compelling um, the the genesis of the script the story of Matt the stories of these people and I think as a director, I was drawn to it. And then when I connected with my cast, I became so immersed in it as a person. Mm. And it just became life-changing for me and was probably one of the greatest moments of my life. And then when my artistic director, Lena Devlin, um, and i were talking about doing it again we were discussing the second play and we found this the same pocket of time in the schedule and we we said let's do this do it do it in repertory and can we do this and i was like yes we can and um, it makes so much sense and it's still also relevant and 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 also examining what had been happening in the world
0: mm-hmm. you know these
1: past yeah. 6 years it just seemed to Fortify the need to do the Laramie project again and and do and do the sequel. Um and then I said to myself, I have to go. I have to go to Laramie. Um yeah.
2: when
1: did you go? I ironically, I went the same weekend that the events um happened to Matthew. Okay. So I went in early October. Um the holiday weekend with Indigenous Peoples Day. So wow. and I got there and I went, "Wow, this is lining up in terms of the attack and the days afterwards and I left on the 11th of October and he had died October 12th. Mm-hmm. And you know, the in in the play Laramie Project 10 years later, they they talk about um you know, Moises Kaufman calls the head of the local paper and says, what are you doing to mm-hmm. recognize the anniversary of Matthew's death? And she's caught off guard. And then mm. she's scrambling, saying, well, I, I wrote a little piece in the paper, but really, you know, people want to move on. And she starts <laughs> going on, you know, this
0: yeah quasi
1: rant about, you know, that's really the— the university's place to do something, not the town, and wow. we're really just wanting to move on. And you know, a hate crime is a, a hate crime is a hate crime. Like if you if you commit a crime, you hate it. Like she's just wow. sort of what? scrambling. Um, her name is Deb Thompson, and she was the editor of the paper. Um, and so I don't think she was anticipating this call, um, and that was her response. And then she publishes like a scathing editorial in the paper. Um, I, th- I believe it was in response to sort of being blindsided by Moises, Moises's phone call. And, and it's this long um, monologue. Andrea Cronin is the actress who delivers it. And she's brilliant. That talks about the pockets of people and Laramie, you know, some who said, I don't want my paper this week. Because if something was published, they didn't want to read it. Some were supportive of some sort of representation, acknowledgement of his of his murder, and then there was like a very small percentage who wanted more exhaustive reporting and wanted a greater, greater response and greater recognition. Um, mm. But she goes on and on and on, and it's it's startling. Mm-hmm. Um, in any event, I I had to go and I went. And you can't fly into Wyoming, so you fly into Colorado, and then I drove two and a half hours to Laramie. And you can't fly in anywhere into Wyoming? Maybe you can, but that's
0: a big state. I guess
1: <laughs> you probably can. Um, There's but like twelve people that live there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the most direct way, um, but it's. Beautiful. I mean, it's just glorious. I don't know if you've been, but um, I found myself in this strange place where I was captivated by, by its beauty. I felt like I was, on one hand, reclaiming myself, mm-hmm. even though I was out there for a mission that had nothing to do with that. And yet, maybe it did. Um, and I investigated the town. I... I trespassed and went to the place where he was um, tied to the fence. The fence is gone. There are tons of signs that say, do not trespass. And I thought, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> Get arrested and <laughs> tell my family I'll be back later than I thought. That's um, <laughs> a great story. I, I wow. went I went at night first because it was nighttime. It was the same time of year. Um it was so cold, mm-hmm. it was so cold. I, I had to make myself stand outside my rental car for 10 minutes, I told myself, you can do 10 minutes, Stace, it, it was so cold and it's so dark, there's, because I guess there's, it's just prairie, um, there's no light, And so it's the, the, the night is so dense Mm. and you hear sounds of animals, not scary, but you do, you hear the animals. Um, And the moon was there, it was a paper moon, but that was it in terms of light. It was cold and it was dark and he was tied up at night and and he had no jacket I had a, a jean jacket on, which was fine during the day, but the temperature had dropped, and i was it was windy and I was cold and And he was in a sweater, you know he had no jacket and no shoes and and he was out there for eighteen hours mm. and it was so cold and Then I went back the next day uh during the day um I took lots of pictures of the site of the landscape um the fireside where he was uh, where he was where he was lured from Um, yeah Yeah. it was it was amazing I just felt like I had to if I was going to direct this piece again I wanted to feel more connected I wanted to feel connected to where Matthew lived Um, I went to the University of Wyoming I saw the bench that was dedicated to him it was um, it was very very vibrant and active people had left um he loved coffee so there was a starbucks coffee can and there was artwork and there were flowers and there was a gay pride flag and um Mm -hmm. it was it was it was lovely you know and Mm. i just felt i needed to understand more if i was going to do this again and honor it Mm. um the way it should be honored um I definitely I, it changed me. It Changed me.
0: Mm.
2: I feel so hesitant to respond when you say things <laughs> like <that>. <laughs> <laughs> when you explain that. Um,
0: Give it a kind of sacred pause. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Sacred. That that was the word that kept coming to me. Is just you invest you invested in the sacred. Um, yeah. Mm. How would you say? This time around is different from the first time you did this? You said it changed you.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure if I even know. I talk to the actors a lot about intention. What is what is the want of each character?
2: Mm.
1: What is why do you speak? Why did you say yes to being interviewed? Hmm. I mean, there's something about when this happened and and uh, the news media outlets flooding Laramie. You know, there was a response, but then I think there was a fatigue among the residents, and I think there was an anger um, because I think they were trying to process. You know, some characters talk about like I. I don't think they were able to process the loss or the experience or the happening or the tragedy because they were just responding to people asking them questions and. And eyes were on them. Like, mm-hmm. yes, yes. But then you have a theater company coming <laughs> and asking questions. And what does that mean? <laughs> You know what? What is what is their intention, and why would you choose as a police officer, as a, a university professor, as a friend, as a resident? Why would you choose to speak with them? Is there something you didn't get to say? Mm-hmm. Is there? the way you wanted to say it, that that a news outlet wouldn't let you because they just want the facts. And, and you were able to like express your feelings about the matter. It was so important to honor all these people because they're real and, and it's their words. Yeah. And so talking to the actors about intention and wanting to get that right and figuring out what, what, what are the obstacles in their way in, in achieving that intention. And then how do you get what you want? What are the tactics that you use in order to, to say what you need to say? And I like to think that I paid attention to the words the first time, but there was just something so much more specific with the text and the people um, and my cast is, was, will always be determined to get it right. That they, they did a lot of their own digging, investigation. We had conversations about, you know, um, you know what it means to imitate and what it means to honor, because mm-hmm. we fall into this pocket where, you know, since since all the characters in the play are alive for the most part, um, y- you don't want to do an impersonation. Right. Um, it's okay to delve into, you know, a, a dialect or a, a voice timbre. Um, but it's also important to, that you bring part of yourself as the actor to the character um, mm-hmm. and make a, a connection with your characters. Um hmm. That's part of the journey of the storytelling. We're not just impersonating people. Um, we're certainly honoring honoring them, but you bring a part of yourself as the vessel, as as the person who is delivering these words, um, and you and you make that connection. And that's what I would imagine. Every production of the Laramie Project makes it different with the acting, with the direction, hmm. scenic design, lighting. We infused a lot of music this time. It was important to me. After visiting, to celebrate texture in terms of texture mm. of emotion, texture. There's so many trees out there. I love trees, <laughs> um, and and it, they spoke to me. And I I mm. wanted trees on the set. Um, and we we talked about having trees, but we made them out of barbed wire or wire to represent Ooh. the the tragedy. Um, so there's beauty, and there's also this darkness mm-hmm. um and and if you get too close, you'll get hurt because they're made out of wire. I did not want the fence represented, but I wanted the fence represented, so we have pallet wood um and it's all throughout the set, so anytime you see wood, that means the fence, but it's not in its yeah, you know traditional mm-hmm. form um the lighting is exquisite it's it's <laughs> It's, there's a lot of blue in the Laramie project because Matthew's favorite color is blue.
2: It feels like you're looking at the sky. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. A couple times. The the, the pinks and the blue like yeah. the way that it all like a sunset yeah. or a sunrise.
1: Yeah. Our our Lily Fosner is our lighting designer and she just we hadn't spoke spoken. And we had our, um, what you call a paper tech the night before you go into technical rehearsal. And that's when you discuss with all the designers when things are going to happen in terms of sound and, and lights and such. And I had written as the director where I wanted light changes and, uh, Every time the stage manager deferred to Lily and she said, oh, yeah, I have a cue there. I internally would have like a little celebration like I did, too. Like I felt like we had Mm. this connection without having connected. Mm. It was such a beautiful experience. Um, And then Mark Evers was our sound designer. And he and I worked a long time over a couple of months to find music selections to support tension um, to uh, when we we move Matthew's bench down, um, in Laramie, ten years later, and there's there's uh, a string piece that plays. Um, it's and I call it a sacred moment that the transition of the bench from the platform it's been living on the, the entire play is is there's a ceremony in its transition that's mm-hmm. supported by strings before his mother sits upon it for an interview. Um. I don't know if you if you caught this. This might be just for me, but in the first play, Nicole, there there's uh, the scene with the angel
2: action where they're protesting <sighs> Phelps, and yeah. I think that might have been the t- the time that I cried. I yeah. didn't cry much at all, which was surprising to me. But that was maybe the most. It was breathtaking. Yeah, uh,
1: it's it's phenomenal. Romaine Patterson, who organized that movement and and designed the angel Mm. costumes and we copied her design. Like there are instructions on how to make the angels and Mm. and we honored that. Um, It's part of a vigil? It's a A scene or a... Like a protest. A protest. So this minister... was Westboro Baptist, right? Correct. And Fred Phelps protested at Matthew's funeral and then six months later at the start of the trial. But... That moment um transitions into the courtroom where russell henderson is is arraigned. It's his not arraigned, actually, it's his trial. Um, in the moment of the protest, the protesters were singing amazing grace uh, against Phelps to to counter his um his bellow. And so we the angels are exiting. And Andrew Larkin, who portrays Russell Henderson, stops. All the angels leave except for him. He's dressed as an angel. And we have a cello piece that comes in and plays Amazing Grace. And then Eric Christ takes off his wings and hands them to Carlene Lawson, who will eventually be the judge at his trial. So she takes his wings. And it's this little moment that I inserted to show that Russell lost his wings. So then Andrew Larkin becomes a protest, uh, transforms from a protester and suddenly is in the courtroom as Russell Henderson. Mm. And I don't know if anybody has captured that. Zach, maybe you'll look for that if, if you get to see it. <laughs> um, um, but it's this moment that, um, yeah, I personally find very powerful um that, I was able to create because I went to Laramie, because of of the investment. I just, I saw things differently and I saw moments that could be stretched out or condensed or celebrated or enriched um, with these. I keep using the word texture. There's just, it's, it's
0: so layered. So this you is what I was witness. talking about in the beginning, yeah. that Still River is like, the quality level at Steel River is unbelievable. Um, just like you say, the the lighting, the sound design, the thought mm, that goes yeah. into all of these, let alone the caliber of the performers. I just, every time I see a show, I think, how is how is this here in Pottstown? <laughs> I feel like I should be in New York or something. I, I really genuinely mean it. I just blown away every single time.
2: I was particularly blown away with falsettos. Um, I, it was the, I mean, I've I've seen shows on Broadway and that was maybe the best show that I've ever seen. And that was what, a six person, seven person cast? Right, like, right. Yeah. In, yeah. The,
0: in the upstairs, in a small yeah, space. in a like, small limited space. Limited set.
2: Yeah. It, I mean, I bawled my eyes out for <laughs> like the entire second act um, because I was so drawn in. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. The pictures. There's, there's a lot of pictures um, on the screen behind where everybody is. Are those ones you took? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. A
1: lot of them. Some of them. Um, some of them I got from the Casper Tribune. Like there are pictures of mm-hmm. the perpetrators um, and people at the prayer vigil. People and... at the prayer vigil. Um, the protesters, part of uh, Fred Phelps' crew. Um, but anything that is like landscape oriented or downtown Laramie, the trains. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of trees that I feature. Um, and just some buildings that there was this interesting building that says open, but it said that on the edifice, and then behind it there's no there's no building. <laughs> it's just the edifice. And <laughs> I found that intriguing. Like I was just drawn oh, wow. to certain um yeah, certain architecture, certain, you know, fortresses and um it's just it's beautiful. It's just beautiful.
0: So from what I've heard and from what we've said so far r- religious folks show up in this. Yes, but not in great ways.
2: Well, I would say mixed. Right. I would say mixed. Yeah. But- How ma- so tell us who who was represented? So we
1: have a Baptist minister. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a Mormon leader. We have uh, a Unitarian minister, and then a Catholic priest. And it's it's a it's an incredible moment where they are all clarifying, basically, where they stand in terms of homosexuality. At least the Baptist minister he he focuses on the Bible about the word the word, the word, and it's delivered um, by Don Green so eloquently. Like he really musters up that Southern uh, draw and delivery and the intonation that is so sweeping Mm -hmm. um, and encompassing and you're drawn into it and you may not even know what he's saying because Mm -hmm. it's just so warm in its delivery and compelling. Um, And then Susan Bolt Portrays Doug Laws, who's with the Mormon Church. And she is quite definitive. She has this robust alto voice that just cuts the room so beautifully. And she is up there defining physically what where the church stands. And she's talking about what is in bounds and what is out of bounds. Mm-hmm. And and she does these incredible gestures about we believe God speaks to us every day. And um and she again is equally as compelling. Like there's such conviction in the delivery that you think, wow, I can see how people would go, Yes, you're mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're this leader and this is what you say. And so this is what I believe, you know? And they are the two that are very, and and Nicole, maybe you you can support this or or give your your take. I find they're very definitive. Mm-hmm. And then you have Stephen Bean Johnson, who's the Unitarian mm-hmm. minister, who's kind of jovial, right? Yes. And and on a side note, I I kept telling our cast it's really important to recognize that there are moments of levity in this piece because mm-hmm. people are people and yes. people have personalities and people respond to tragedy in different mm-hmm. ways. And some people laugh out of discomfort and some people mm-hmm. just and 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 some people cry and some people need humor to keep going, you know. Yeah. So Stephen Mead Johnson I find endearing and he is one would say less polished or or um sort of restricted you know and he he talks about like he's so far left he's probably sitting by himself and um he talks about all the mormons down there and um they're like jam on toast down here and it's like he doesn't (laughs) know why he was sent there Mm -hmm. but he has the closing words of that moment where he said three weeks later i find out why i'm sent there Mm because he was sent three weeks before matthew was killed oh my goodness um And then you have Father Roger Schmidt, who is the Catholic priest, um, represented by Carlene Lawson, who's this beautiful Jamaican woman. And, you know, she talks about being jolted by what happened and by the lack of the response of the religious leaders. And it was Father Schmidt, the Catholic priest, who got all the leaders together and said, we have to do something. Mm -hmm. and, and. Being a Catholic, I I think that was very brave, you know? There was, like, you know, um, homosexuality is not accepted within the Catholic faith. And, you know, he was responding as a human, as a compassionate human, and as a leader, and we can't stand by. Like, we have to do something. Um, He was the one, and so— it it's so important to me that a jamaican woman is playing that role it's so important to me to recognize that you know he was leaving a circumstance or going against a circumstance that that uh, what am i trying to say a framework yeah. that didn't support what he was feeling um and yet he just he just didn't think he went and he kept digging and digging Um, He's got lots of impassioned monologues, and then he shows up again in 10 years later, and Mm. we find that he's been visiting with Aaron McKinney a lot. Wow! And and he has a very powerful line after he uh, delivers a very powerful analogy that says, he tells Greg Parati, one of the Tectonic Theater members, that Aaron is more like me than unlike me. Very powerful line. Mm. So, yeah, that was the representation. I find that moment startling. I don't know how you felt about that, but.
2: Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm sure a lot of this has to do with being a pastor yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and how I came to that show. I felt very, um, very moved because I, I would say that my upbringing was very close to the Baptist minister. Mm-hmm. um if not identical um that that scene the word the word the word the word the word like that that resonated a lot um and and the more both of them actually um I would say um who I am now and and who like I resonated much more with the Unitarian but was most moved by the Catholic priest right right mm-hmm. um and I I think this I think his journey was very symbolic of what our what my journey has been what i probably would say zach is that um you can have you can have a theory (laughs) you can have a way of understanding things a interpretation of scripture when things when you actually see something in reality when you when Mm -hmm. you see this um When you see what happens as a result, even of, you know, I I don't know the religious background of of Aaron and Russell, but, you know, what they learned in church certainly impacts, right? Right. Um, Certainly, um, if if, if we're taught that it's a sin, then we can say, well, that person's a sinner. And we can then say that um, we want to uh, rub out the sin in the world which then makes it okay for us to victimize mm-hmm. like there is like it, we we think that you know the, the things that we say and do from the pulpit um, we think that they mean things but we also feel like well it's not that big of a deal like i'm just saying what what this book says but like what my hearer like when when um the church shooting in um at Emmanuel Ame, the perpetrator was a church kid. Like he was raised in youth group, and 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 so, as the church, we're responsible. Like we're we're responsible for what we teach, and we're responsible for how that impacts our hearers. And um, if we are giving um, more kindling <laughs> for hatred, um, he's one of ours right like we right. we have to then take responsibility right so um the priest responding out of the love of Jesus rather than the book about him right was mm. just so beautiful um and so I, I just such a reflection of Jesus and and i was so very moved by that and also felt like when i was listening to um the the baptist minister and the the mormon minister i felt I felt like okay as a pastor take this as a moment of corporate confession.
0: This is one of the reasons I felt it so important to plant open table yeah. because my general experience has been those who are strongly anti-LGBTQ in the church are loud mm-hmm. and adamant and they will tell you the seven verses in the Bible that seem to condemn you and are just so vocal. Meanwhile, all of the Christians who are like, yeah, no, we love you. You're fine. You're great. We're very quiet. Mm -hmm. And they just assume- We want to be
2: respectful. (laughs) We just
0: assume that, you know, we're the nice ones. We're the good kind of Christian. Mm. (laughs) And that's good enough. Meanwhile, the hateful ones are the loud ones. Right. So it feels like if we're going to be actual partners and advocates, we need to be as loud as the hate- with our message of love, which we think is more core, more central to the message of Jesus than than the madness that they're spewing. So, I mean, our logo has a rainbow in it. Um, right, right. Not because, you know, that is our focus, but because it's important that when a person who has been historically squashed down by the church sees our logo, they know that we are not one of those places. And that's just really important to me.
2: Literally planting the flag. Like Right. Right. This is a a signal. <laughs> like we're yeah. we're trying to like We see you. We yes. 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 Yeah. yeah. So that was really powerful. And that was a part mm. of the the I was gonna call a service. <laughs> the part of um it the show like that I was wrestling with mm. a lot. A lot.
1: Yeah. Russell Henderson was raised Mormon and he he was basically raised by his grandmother who was very involved in the church and he was excommunicated immediately upon uh, killing Matthew, his arrest. And there's a big interview with him in the second act of Laramie 10 years later. And you feel you you can sense that he feels invisible he feels erased mm-hmm. and you know that was his experience that was his journey he talks about like, he was raised to be good he was raised to care and he he said and i actually believe that and it, the whole interview with uh, don green and andrew larkin portraying uh Stephen Belper and Russell Henderson is is so compelling because there is this this restlessness there is this you know what are all the things that he is trying to understand about himself why he keeps talking about why did i do what i did you know because i believed in what i was taught because i believed in values but i did this anyway so there is to refer to what you were speaking to, Nicole, there's this, you know, th- th- his being a Mormon was part of who he is, you know, and their response was to not be there for him, but to extinguish him, mm-hmm. and he's grappling with that, and grappling with his
2: identity, and grappling
1: with his choices. Emotionally
2: and, injured. like Yeah. he went against his better judgment. He went against his core values. Mm. Um,
0: That's such a cop-out from the church, though. Yeah. To be like, excommunicate you, you're not our problem anymore. You're not one of us. We don't have to claim responsibility for you.
1: Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's, um, and then Aaron McKinney, as I mentioned earlier, um, became close with Father Roger. So Father Roger visited Aaron Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was in a prison in Virginia, they the both of them get transferred somewhat regularly in tandem, and then Father Roger still writes to him, and um, there's a big theme in uh, in Laramie ten years later about remorse. Father Roger talks about remorse, mm-hmm. and he talks about it with. Greg Parati, one of the company members, who then goes to interview and meet Aaron and brings up what remorse is. Um, And that's a big theme. But just that connection of Father Roger, a Catholic priest, being with Aaron um, and that Mm -hmm. understanding. And he says to Greg, you— I To understand him does not mean to excuse. To understand him does not mean to be permissive of choices. But we need to understand because we are part of the society that created Aaron. Mm-hmm. And so we need to understand. And you can't understand that from sitting behind a desk. You have to understand that actively. Wow. You have to go see him. And this is coming from the Catholic priest. So it's just interesting Just to highlight the the religious component in both of their journeys.
0: Yeah, well, I think we are at the end of our time together. (laughs) Um, I I still have so many questions. (laughs) Part two tomorrow. I think I'm. I think I'm seeing it on Friday, right? Okay, that's when I'm ushering. Yeah. Um, So, how can people see the show?
1: Um, you can go to our website, steelriver.org, and purchase tickets there. Um, you can call our box office and speak with the amazing and lovely Velvazarli, and she will help you find seats that <laughs> she is lovely and she amazing. It will work for you. Like if you just have, um, you know, hearing challenges or ambulatory challenges, she's, she really knows um, our audiences and what they need. Um, but yes, so we've run the Laramie Project. This Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for the final three shows, and then the last weekend of March, the final three shows of the Laramie Project ten years later.
0: Okay, so it's so you have uh, one more weekend a piece to catch either show.
2: Correct. That's why we want to do this podcast as soon as possible because we yes. want we want to encourage folks to see this, um, to engage with it, if for nothing else, to honor uh, Matt's memory to have some hard conversations. Yes. Yeah. Um,
0: It's not history yet.
2: No, that's, yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm bringing my 15 year old daughter, Lucy on Sunday Mm -hmm. and I am, what's the word? I am so looking forward to hearing everything she has to say and feel and experience it with her it's it's that's one of the gifts of this piece is like as you said to have conversations and to introduce another generation to what happened and to keep raising awareness of what is still happening yeah
2: yeah Hmm. Stacey thank you so much Thank you
1: for this <laughs> gift yeah. oh What a
2: gift God. I appreciate it so I feel much the same way yeah. <laughs> I feel the same way um, And thank you f- Thank you for your Your courage And your bravery um, to do this, uh, to do this show. Uh, I was talking to Lena about this and she said, we do fun
0: stuff too, like
2: (laughs) (laughs) I promise. And I said, I am so grateful that you don't just do the fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: they did SpongeBob last year.
2: Yeah, but (laughs) you know, this isn't just in Wyoming, like this is here. That's right, it's our story. It's our story and um, I think it's really brave really courageous and a huge gift to our community. So thank
0: you. You're welcome. Thank you very much.